Hello and welcome to iPod, the College of Optometrists podcast where we explore the profession and the fascinating world of vision and eye care, discover new ideas and research and learn from others' experiences. Today, it has been hosted by me, Denise Voon, and I'm so excited to be joined today by Dr. Samantha Strong, a lecturer of visual science at Aston University, author of Introduction to Visual Optics, A Light Approach, and scientific illustrator. And on top of that, she has a background in psychology and perception. Welcome, Sam. Hi, thanks for the invite. I'm very happy to be here. Excellent. And today um, we'll be talking about something I know that you're particularly passionate about, and that is motion perception in cataract patients. Yep, that is true. Um, it's currently my main area of research interest at Aston University, and I think passionate is the nice way of saying I'm really geeky about it, so I'm really extra excited to be here to talk about it today. And that's great. And I have to say, when we first um, discussed this as a potential podcast topic, I have to say, I didn't really know what it was. So maybe that's a good place to start. Sort of, what is it and why is it important? Exactly. And I think that's the great question to start with, because that's really the, the question I get from everyone all the time. And I've had that throughout my stages of study. So for a tiny bit of background and context, I started my interest in perception in that way, just focusing on motion in the first place. And typically, that's kind of not the it's not the most popular route for perception usually it's much more interesting to go into spatial domains or like face perception or higher level I'm not going to say more interesting but more kind of like easily available accessible kind of perceptual features but I was really interested in motion perception because I'm fascinated by the fact that we look around the world and we move around and things move around us and things happen and we don't have to make any conscious effort to understand how fast things are going or how fast we're going or whether they're moving towards us away from us if they're changing speed or changing trajectory we just know intuitively and immediately and everyone can do it to a certain extent and it's to me it's an amazing feature so I started my interest in motion perception from kind of that geeky perspective if you like but then I studied it in the human brain the healthy human brain to see how the brain might be processing this and then from there, I was working in optometry departments in academia and getting more involved in research in clinical populations. And I kind of thought, I know from my research that things can, loads of things can affect motion perception. So we can have effects of blur. So even if you just reduce the spatial information of a stimulus, we can get less sensitive to the speed it's moving, or we can find it more difficult to judge the direction accurately, which feels a bit wild, but that is true. And we also know that if you affect the contrast of a, an object or even just the contrast that you perceive it as, that can affect not only your perceived speed of that object, but it can also lead to behavioral change, which is a very fancy way of saying it might make you change the speed that you're driving and that was quite a hot topic for a while because of people potentially driving too fast in fog and that kind of thing but with my background in then working in optometry departments I started to get fixated I guess on cataract patients because they experience increases in blur and decreases in contrast as the cataracts develop and we know with different types of cataract that might develop at different rates and different stages and people might be affected more or less to different degrees but I was thinking if we know scientifically it's shown that these things affect motion perception then it makes sense that there might be some degradation or some effect on patients with cataracts but they might not notice for two reasons the first being that cataracts typically develop slowly and they happen slowly over time so they might not really notice that there's been big changes to their vision because it would happen kind of alongside other changes that might be going on anyway. And we also know that increased age affects motion perception and our ability to do these tasks. So you can imagine with age-related cataracts, it's just gonna be a bit, possibly a bit deteriorated anyway. 
But the second and for me the most interesting feature of this is that I really believe in the idea that the kind of conscious awareness isn't there for this temporal motion domain. And when I say that, I think people think I've gone a bit, a bit sort of wild. But what I mean is we're very good at recognizing deterioration in the spatial domain. So if, for example, our refractive error changes or there's some degree of blur or distortion, we can describe that and we can tell people about it and we can notice it as well. So I often present to my optometrists because I'm, I'm a myope. So I present and say, I can't see the signs at the train station anymore. Or I'm really struggling to see the lecture slides and the, and the lecture theatre. And they'll say, oh, OK, you've had a, you know, a change in your prescription. We'll prescribe you a lens. We'll fix it. And they can test that really easily. Whereas if I suddenly became, let's say, five to 10% less sensitive to the speed differences of cars driving towards me, not only would I not be able to notice that because I don't have that conscious access to that, but also how would I describe that? And even if I did somehow, how would I describe that? And I think what's much more likely is that patients won't notice, they won't describe it, but they might say something like, I feel a little bit funny when I'm in the car now, or I just started to notice I'm bumping into things a bit more, or I don't feel as happy when I'm navigating, or I feel a bit apprehensive about crossing the road. So they'll say something that describes a kind of outcome rather than the recognition of the perceptual experience. And I'm interested in that because I hear that a lot from people with cataracts and from colleagues who are clinicians who see patients in practice. And so I'm currently focusing my research on looking at this in more detail and a lot of specific detail, but also with the hope that it might help to kind of better understand the vision of cataract patients and then potentially lead to nice outcomes for patient information and awareness of the condition as well. And that's actually really interesting because I have had patients um, in the past who might even not have too severe a cataract and then they sort of describe very nondescript symptoms as you've just mentioned just now and to be honest quite a lot of the time I discarded them because there doesn't seem to be any obvious reason the VAs are still relatively good there's no pathology at the back of the eyes but actually from what you're saying it could actually be something more like problems with their motion perception. Yeah definitely and that's kind of it's really one of my driving factors for getting into this because the, there's lots of evidence, and I can give you some anecdotal evidence as well, that the spatial ability does not necessarily correlate with the motion ability. So we have a lot of, in young people and older people and healthy populations, we have a lot of what we call individual differences. So that means that, for example, I myself am very good at motion perception, and that's not natural, it's just because I've trained myself by accident over time, because I code these experiments, and I look at these experiments all the time, so I'm accidentally an expert in it but my sister for example she comes in and sits for me sometimes she's similar age to me her VA is as good when we're both functionally emotropic and we're corrected and that's all fine and our contrast sensitivity is the same as well so we have on the surface level we have exactly the same spatial resolution we have the same visual ability but then you get us on these fine-tuned speed discrimination tasks and she's performing much worse than me and by that, I don't mean that she's not able to do the task she is, but she's just much less sensitive to what we call speed discrimination. And to give a bit of context about that sort of in the real world, the experiment we do is lab based. So it's not like this at all, but it would be similar to if I showed you a video of a car driving down a road at 30 miles an hour. So a constant speed. And then I immediately showed you another video of a car that this time was driving at, let's say, 35 miles an hour. And I said to you, was the first car, the second car moving faster? If you were good at the task, you'd hopefully recognize that the 30 mile, 35 mile an hour car was faster than the 30 mile an hour car. 
But if you weren't sensitive enough to those differences in speed, you might think they looked very similar and then you'd be guessing. So we'd see your performance at chance at that level and we'd have to make the difference in speed larger. And so people who aren't very sensitive to speed information need much bigger changes in speed between two objects to notice that they're different. And people who are very good don't need as much of a difference between them at all. So it'd be like, I might be able to tell the difference between 30 and 32 miles an hour, but my sister might need 30 and 38 miles an hour. And that doesn't mean that she's not able to do the task and she's, you know, it doesn't mean she's unsafe, but it really highlights to me that even in normal population you get lots of differences in ability to do this and it doesn't in any way relate to the kind of visual test that we might have done at the optometric practice in your standard sort of high street practice because we on face value have exactly the same VA and exactly the same contrast sensitivity so it's it's just even more I guess motivation for me to get into this because if we're starting at a point where people might have these differences in ability and then it might deteriorate and they might not notice that means that if for example my sister who's starting at a slightly lower point than me if she had a deterioration that might be more impactful to her life than if I had a deterioration because I might have more wiggle in that way and so that's why I suspect and this is all just you know sort of thought experiments I guess but that's why I suspect some patients might see seem to have more struggle with that kind of symptom than other patients because they're they might have started at a different ability if that makes sense yeah definitely so um i mean you 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 mentioned your motion perception improved with with the training from having to practice the experiments and so on so is motion perception something that we learn as we develop or is it something that we're born with Oh yeah, so with everything in vision, it all develops over time and experience. And that's kind of, that's what I love about the brain is that the neurons just are born ready to try and learn and that's sort of my philosophy on life anyway. So that's quite nice. But as with everything, neurons develop depending on the quality of the experience and the active involvement with the environment and that experience itself. So we, as children, will get exposure to lots of things. And that's why you think people who are children who play outside might get slightly more sort of valuable motion processing but then in fact if they're inside but they're playing lots of active video games maybe that's as good I don't have that data but potentially that's just it's the same um, but then when you get into adulthood I know it's quite controversial in optometry to say whether we can or can't change ability to perceive things in adulthood but there's lots of evidence for perceptual learning and perceptual learning is this idea that if you spend enough time training on certain aspects of visual tasks, you can see improvements to your threshold level. So this doesn't mean that you're somehow some super wizard able to do these amazing visual tasks, but it will mean that you get better than you were to start with. And so there's a lot of evidence for that in other kinds of conditions, like can you improve eccentric fixation in AMD by training the patients to have sort of more active, more reinforcement with their their practice and that kind of thing and I think from the same point of view you'd get that with motion processing as well so if we go way into the future of my research like if we find these if if we find these real differences that we're finding in the simulations in the lab in cataract patients for real then what we'd expect is that we might be able to develop kind of training regimes that might help them to feel a bit more comfortable uh, in their day-to-day -day life or in fact before they even start complaining if we just recognize that they're in the early stages of developing a cataract we might be able to recommend that they start practicing these motion type tasks because that might help them to just stay happy for a bit longer 
if there's if that's sort of the right way to say that yeah so sort of, sort of as when we advise say good diet and exercise um for patients for long-term preventative this is the sort of thing that we could recommend as well and sort of yeah. what sort of things are we talking about are we talking about computer games for 12 hours a day seven days a week or oh no definitely yeah so that's a great question I think obviously the side point here is that if we had to get them to do perceptual learning and training for 12 hours a day seven days a week nobody's going to do that and everything in healthcare is about effectiveness but also compliance and I think any well maybe my brother would do that but I don't think very many other people would do that so I think what we really need to know is how much is effective and depending on the type of task that will vary quite a lot but I've I've read lots of papers where it it's never too much that it would become really sort of really affect your day-to-day life. It is just more like saying I'll do 30 minutes of gym exercise every three days or something. It's that kind of regime that would work. And once you get through the initial training regime where you do sort of, let's say, an hour every two days for maybe a period of a week or two weeks, if it's designed well, so it involves you paying very direct attention and you get reinforcement and it's encouraging in the right way, then it seems to be that you can get longer term effects if you just reinforce it. So you don't need to keep up that intensity of the regime as you go through. You can sort of reduce it a bit after that initial period. But this is kind of a terrible answer. But that initial period and the intensity would depend on how what or what the task was and how it was designed, um, because I'm sure that many of our patients would say that they watch the TV or they watch sports or they they watch things that move. So it's not that they're not experiencing motion, they probably drive a car. So they do have this experience, but it's about making sure that it's not just passive attention, it's active attention and that they're getting reinforcement. So they know if they've done it right or if, if they've done the motion perception right, if you like, if they've judged the speed correctly, if they've judged the direction correctly, or if they needed to slightly alter their approach. And that's kind of the the value of that training great so it could even be something very simple like when you're a passenger in a car and just be sort of more aware of where all the speed signs are or just sort of making more uh, I guess conscious effort to be looking at things or counting things as you go by yeah exactly and that's actually a great a great idea for how you could get that if you were a clinician and your patient asked you um obviously we want to get the research published so that it can be evidence-based but at this point Um, clinicians aren't measuring motion perception so if patients speak to you and say I'm experiencing this kind of weirdness let's say in the car what do I do then if you're if you suspect that it might be a motion perception issue it would be very within your remit to say why don't you try to pay active attention to something on the outside because there is research that shows that that kind of thing helps so I liked your example of counting what goes past or kind of helping to navigate or anything that maintains attention outside of the vehicle and focusing on the movement of things which is possibly why and this is anecdotal and I know that anecdotal evidence is never the most convincing but I know a few cataract patients who've said they only struggle when they're a passenger they don't struggle to drive and that to me is that difference between actively engaging with the motion versus just experiencing it passively and I think if you can get you know you don't want your passenger to start backseat driving but if you can get them to be doing something active with the environment as it passes for example counting the trees or I spy maybe to look for certain objects, anything like that would get them to focus their attention outside. And I think that could potentially have a lot of value. That's that's great. And um, I guess because we don't measure it in practice, um, so it is difficult for us to, to know for sure. Is there is there any other parameters that we do measure that we could use as an example? So, for instance, if we somebody had a three line drop in VA, could we then say that is 
perhaps equivalent to a certain amount of drop in motion perception or are they not linked in that way? Yeah, that's a great question. I would hypothesize that they're not likely to be linked in a linear way like that. So I would, this is the kind of thing we're looking at in my lab at the minute and we're finding very, it's not surprising, but I think it's surprising that it's so effective. We're finding very surprising results in terms of the, the similarity of visual acuity and d- deterioration of visual acuity with our filters that we use, which I'll describe in a second, versus the output at the end. So in our lab, we are hoping to recruit patients with cataracts in the future. We've recruited a few and it's looking quite good, but we definitely need a lot more. But at the moment, what we're doing instead to test is hypothesis is we're using healthy control people from the age of about 20 to 44 and we're inducing scatter so we've got these very clever filters which induce basically phase aberrations which means instead of just blurring or just reducing the contrast they do just increase the amount of scatter that enters the eye and we have three levels of these filters so what we can do is we can give these healthy participants, a motion task to do, see how they perform, and then we can gradually increase the amount of scatter that they have as an individual to see what happens to their performance. And we're seeing that, yes, we do see some drops in visual acuity with these filters, and yes, we do see some drop in contrast sensitivity as well, and those are quite predictable. So as you increase the scatter, you see a very similar drop in acuity and very similar drops in contrast across all of our participants. But the amount of sort of decrease in sensitivity to motion varies quite a lot and it depends on the type of task they're doing so I thought of I don't want to bore the audience too much here but we have lots of different things in motion processing so we can look at speed and we can look at direction and we can look at velocity so if changes in velocity or we can look at something called local versus global motion mm-hmm. and the, the idea here is that the stimulus could be a whole screen of dots, all of them moving to the right, let's say just at a constant speed. So if you just watched one individual dot on the screen, you'd know what all the other dots were doing. And that would count as local motion. So you just need to be good at it in one particular part of the visual field and you'd be able to get the gist and that's fine. Global motion, however, is far more interesting because it's far more complex, but it's also far more valuable in terms of what we do when we move around the world. So Most people would never notice this unless you're either running down a corridor or driving in snow. But when we move forward through the world, the world kind of expands across the retina in something we call optic flow. So it's like it comes from the center of where we're looking and then it expands across. And that's really valuable because it helps us to work out the speed we're going relative to the speed of stationary and moving objects and people around us. And you can imagine that that will be very valuable when you're driving as well, because you're not always looking directly forward. Sometimes you're looking at road signs, so you look slightly to the side. So the the type of motion that you get there is is global because you need the whole scene to make sense of it, but it's much more applicable to the real world. And when we're in the lab, we see these predictable drops in acuity and predictable drops in contrast sensitivity. Some people have a bit of a drop in local motion, so that single dot example, some don't. But most participants have at least a small drop in this global motion ability to determine speed. So, and many participants have a huge loss of sensitivity to that kind of signal. So for me, that's interesting because that they're processed in slightly different parts of the brain, but I think all we're doing is reinducing scatter in the same participants. So for me, that's driven completely by the change in the light information that they're receiving. And that is really interesting because you think, if we want our patients to feel safe moving through the world and driving cars or even just walking through through their house, you want to be able to say, 
you can still do this task. And so I don't think that the drop in acuity would be such a good predictor of that. So instead, what I'm advocating for, and I will eventually get to once I've finished all my research, I hope, is that I really want to design a test that tests for this. So we can say, hopefully before the cataract develops, this is what your baseline performance is, and here's what we expect this to do happen as you, as you age, and that's normal. But then if you see any loss of reduction in that motion sensitivity as the cataract develops, that could potentially inform referral criteria if you were worried that the patient was experiencing poor quality of life. But at the very least, it would help the patient to feel satisfied that if they sort of were aware of some weirdness in their vision, that it's not just them overthinking, it's not them having some weird phenomena happening that nobody's ever experienced before. It is a genuine effect that their, their clinical expert has said is likely to happen. And I think for me, I know you said at the beginning, I have the psychology background, so I'm really interested in that because I think there's there's loads of data on this, but there's a particular study I like where they found that physical pain in the arm is always rated much higher and it leads to much higher levels of anxiety if it's idiopathic so if the patient doesn't know what's causing it whereas if they know what's causing it it can be sort of equivalent but they feel that it doesn't hurt as much and they don't worry about it as much and I know that um, feeling a bit uneasy in the car and bumping into objects isn't physical pain but I think that must tie into patient happiness and quality of life and anxiety in exactly the same way because if you're worried that you don't know what it is that's going to be huge. So my ultimate goal is to see if we can devise a test or just improve patient information from the clinician to say, this is what we know happens to vision in the temporal domain. And this is what you might experience so that the patient can kind of just breathe that sigh of relief and say, Whew, I'm happy. I know what this is and that's fine. And if it feeds into referral criteria, that's great. But if it, if it, Worst case scenario, if it doesn't, at least then we've improved kind of the patient's satisfaction and that relationship with their practitioner as well. Yes, because I think you're right, certainly when you think about referrals, because there are some patients that come in and their vision is actually still pretty good. They're still legal to drive, but they're just not happy and they're just not comfortable. And a lot of the time then we have to put in symptoms of why you're referring at a, um, when they, their VAs are still good. And usually we'll say, you know, they're experiencing lots of problems with glare and so on. But if we could have something to say that actually this is something we can add to our criteria of things we're considering, then that actually could either mean that we can refer more appropriately but also if it is a case of saying to the patient yeah this is normal it's fine perhaps their symptoms or their perception of what's going on might reduce and then we could delay surgery on on either side so it could work in both ways I think. Yeah exactly and I think that's that's really really good point and a really good summary of my my waffle but I think as well like the whole thing is really interesting to me because we're we consider patients with two eyes and that's fine but often the cataracts if they get two it won't develop exactly the same in each eye so we have to think currently we're focusing our research on the the kind of the monocular effect of the cataract so in our simulations and in our cataract patients that we're testing we just occlude one eye and we test it on the other eye so we're getting no confounding effects of anything else we're just literally saying this is what this eye can do here's what happens when we put a filter in the way here's what happens when we put a more severe filter in the way and let's have a look at that but actually patients don't walk around like that. I'm, I'm certain that they don't because I wouldn't. They use both eyes. And if there's a difference between the eyes, that can lead to a real serious mismatch in your ability to do these type of tasks. And that would be so much worse for global motion because global motion relies on that sense of the whole field. And there's only parts of the field that aren't binocular, but you can think you're going to use both eyes to do that accurately. 
And so we then have a situation where it might even be worth looking at referral criteria to say if the difference between the eyes is big enough, that might warrant a motion perception deficit that's needs to be thought about. Uh, or it might also feed into kind of thinking about speeding up second eye surgery following first eye surgery, because we we know that patients can experience problems between those two because they get that difference in sort of visual experience across the eyes. And actually, there's a great quote from a paper, uh, I think led by David Elliott's lab, but it's Weber et al. 2020, where the cataract patient said, after I had one surgery done, I found it much more difficult to reverse into the garage. And for driving, it was really hard to turn across oncoming traffic to judge the distance and speed that the car is coming towards you. As soon as I had both done, fine, back to normal. So that, that to me is a really nice uh, kind of anecdotal story from a patient who's experiencing this, who very unusually is very aware of their motion perception ability. So they're saying, I can't judge speeds, but they were saying that only happened when they had the difference between the eyes following the first surgery. And then there's no period of adaptation. According to this patient, it was just as soon as they matched again, they found it a lot easier and a lot more effective to judge those speeds and judge those distances and reversing the car and all the things that we need motion perception for. Yeah, there's a lot of different branches to it. So it's, it is referral information, it is patient information, but it's also kind of thinking about the impact of the differences as well. Yeah, and that's really interesting because it's just kind of got me thinking, is there, or perhaps it's a little bit too early to say, is it, I know everybody has sort of different motion perception ability, so yours is probably better than mine. Um, so would you be affected more by it um, than I would um, if we both dropped by a certain amount, the same amount? So is it the, the amount that we've dropped by? Or is it that we both have to reach a threshold at which it becomes very problematic? Oh, that's a great question. That is a question that I don't know that I could answer 100% confidently, but one that I can definitely riff about. So I'm happy to do that. I think it would depend what you use your motion perception for generally in the day to day. So if we both did exactly the same jobs and exactly the same tasks and we drove the same distance and all those kinds of things, then I think if we both dropped the same amount, I would still be okay for longer relative to you if you started off lower than me I don't know that you would because as I say it's very different across people but if for example I was really reliant on my motion perception for my day-to-day -day life like I'm a rally driver or so, something like that then if I had a, the same drop but I needed to be better than sort of the average person maybe at that kind of task then I would experience a much bigger impact of that and it would affect my quality of life to a much different extent so in the same way but maybe less extreme if we have two patients and we don't know their baseline level that they're starting at in terms of speed differences and direction differences and trajectory plotting and all that kind of stuff if one of them drives and one of them doesn't it might be that the driver feels that they're less happy even though they might still have better discrimination ability than the other person and all these things but it depends on what they use it for and what they feel they need it for uh, and as yeah it would it would really depend on the individual which is why I think it's really valuable to have I hope in the future baseline measures as well so we can say this patient used to be very good and now they're slightly less good let's say and it's slightly worse than we'd expect to be associated with normal effects of aging and they're complaining to me about worries in the car or they bump into things more and so I as a practitioner now think that they're experiencing something that we need to do something about even if they're still left at sort of 6-12 let's say and go from there but 
I'm happy to be wrong about this, but I don't think it would be as easy as just saying, oh, everybody, if they drop to a certain amount, they would see the difference or they'd have that difference, if that makes sense. Yeah, so it is dependent on lots of like, like visual acuity, I suppose, and, and some yeah. people will manage well with lower levels of visual acuity than others. So, I mean, I can definitely see the um, applications of and the importance of motion perception when we think about driving. So I had a couple of questions along those lines. Um, firstly, does um, when people drive under different conditions, so like today it's nice and sunny and bright, would, the, would my motion perception be better than if I took the car out later on in the dark? Oh, that's a great question. And this is a very um, complicated question that I'm going to give a very long answer to, but hopefully an interesting one. So there is evidence to suggest that the contrast of the scene will help with accurate speed perception, let's say, so in a healthy person. So if we then drop the light levels to mesopic and the contrast was a bit lower, uh, then that might be that your speed discrimination gets poorer because the light levels have just changed uniformly over, over the scene. But then obviously things get a bit more complicated because once we get to scotopic, lights come on and headlights come on. And if you've got a cataract, you're much more likely to get symptoms of glare and a lot more scatter of these kinds of situations where the, the light is very focal in its, in its location. And then you're going to struggle to even see the object, never mind see the speed it's moving and all these kinds of things as well. So one of the things I'm really interested in at the moment is levels of luminance and object luminance and how that is affected by the speed or how cataracts might affect the speed perception of those things as well. So for example, if we have a light object on a dark background, is that very easy to see in terms of the speed or is it very is it that it gets scattered too much and it's hard to see? I suspect that would be easier though than if we had a dark object on a light background because then I think the light background would kind of engulf, I guess, the the dark object if it wasn't different enough, if you like. So we're, I'm kind of really interested in this and it's a really broad question, but I'm interested in pure luminance levels and differences in background versus object luminance levels and impacts on speed, because I know and from my own research that we're finding differences in that just on computer screens. So there's very likely that we'd see differences in this in the wide and varied and wonderful levels of illumination we have in the real world. But then there's also the, the extra level of when you have these bright headlights at nighttime or the street lamps and everything's kind of a very peculiar level of illumination or unpredictable and variable, then what does that mean as well? Because we know that everything's just a bit harder to do at that that kind of time of day. So I'm interested in this. I'm, that's not very good answer in terms of yes or no, but I'm very interested in this. And we are looking at this in a lot of detail because that's going to be the next step, isn't it? And we know that patients complain about glare when they're driving at nighttime and they're much more likely to stop driving at night before they give up driving completely if they start developing cataract. And so it's interesting to me to see if there's any difference in the speed perception on top of the effect of glare as well. And I guess the impacts of speed perception, if, if it's not as good as um, it must be harder to judge, say you're trying to pull out onto a road, how far away or how quickly a car's likely to be able to come towards you. Is that yeah. what you're thinking of? Exactly. So it would be like if you just become a bit less sensitive to speed. So I will make the point clear and possibly should have said this at the beginning. But when we talk about becoming less sensitive to speeds, we're not saying that people can't see the things moving anymore. They definitely can. But because we don't have that conscious access to our abilities to do these tasks, you just see it moving and you don't 
you can't judge how accurately you're you're judging its speed. So I've pulled out before and I've thought, oh, that car appeared very quickly behind me. And usually I assume that it's because they sped up or, you know, something changed in the environment. But it could be that I just misjudged that speed and I would never know because I don't have access to that information and I won't have access to that information and ignorance is bliss and that's fine. But it means that if we have a patient who might have a deteriorated sense of speed perception relative to what they're normally used to, e.g. with a cataract, as I'm proposing with my research, then if they, as you say, if they're pulling out of a junction or if they're trying to get onto a roundabout or if they're just trying to overtake a car on the motorway, that mm. might prove to be very difficult if they can't accurately judge not only the speed of the object or the car, but their own speed as well. And then that just adds another level of, I think, well, it's safety, isn't it? But also quality of life. You know, I'm not going to want to do things that make me feel unsafe or put me at risk so I think patients would be exactly the same and they're much more likely to give up some of their independence just out of uncertainty in that situation so if we can do anything like for example identify that it might be an issue and then possibly develop perceptual learning to help keep that level good for longer then that would be really positive and if not then if we can sort of inform referral criteria to help keep them independent and safe that would be really positive as well. So I'm really hopeful that this research will lead to something positive in the future. Yeah, definitely, and and not just with uh, road traffic or potential road traffic accidents, I suppose. But you know, as people get older, and um, for multifactorial reasons, um, falls increase. But like you were saying, if you've got patients who can't really sort of navigate themselves around the house, or they keep bumping into objects, that could be a factor, and that could be something that could be worth looking at with those definitely. sorts of things. Yeah, I think as well, there's been a really nice paper published, I think, possibly last year, Joanne Wood's lab, and they've looked at the relationship between motion detection. So can you, t how much does something have to move before you can tell that it started to move, that kind of task, and postural sway. So this is the idea that you stand on something that's not very firm and even, and you look at a wall and you have to stand as still as possible. And if you sway around a lot, then you're considered to be not that good at balancing if you stand very still then you're considered to be quite good at balancing and they found i'm probably doing it a disservice but in general they found that there was a link between poor motion perception and greater amounts of postural sway and what's crucial for that in terms of clinical practice is that postural sway is quite heavily associated with risk of falls because you can think that if you're not able to balance as convincingly on a slightly uneven surface let's say a carpet that's just very plush or a rug or if you're kind of on a, a funny bit of pavement outside or anything like that and then you're less likely to be able to stand straight up on it you're much more likely to lose your balance and fall even without moving anywhere so that is all related to motion perception in terms of navigation but then also motion perception in terms of using that visual information to keep you completely steady when you're sort of your ground isn't as steady as you want it to be kind of thing and I think that's really that's sort of where the research is at the minute is looking at these links between as you say the falls risks but then also links with perceptual changes and currently motion perception is up there with one of the top predictors. That's incredible because then if you could develop the training maybe that could help um, potential um, people who are at risks of falls to improve that yeah, definitely. That would be a hugely positive outcome. And there's lots of, in that way, there's actually the motion, visual motion training would be very valuable. You, but you could also facilitate that with this kind of vestibular training that they can do where they 
basically it's, it's slightly more complicated and it would be more expensive to run so the vision stuff is what i think that we should definitely do but the it could be in theory facilitated by what they call roll tilt training which is where they change the orientation of your head and you have to say which way it's been moved and if there's a lot of evidence that if you get trained to do this your postural sway is better so you can you could kind of see that you could have this multidisciplinary approach between the vestibular team and the optometric team and sort of see that you could improve patients safety in terms of falling and sway just through those two mechanisms and not really changing anything else but yeah it's a very complicated issue it's complicated but equally um hopefully this is the it's, it's exciting in that you could potentially have an intervention that's not too invasive that anybody can do that could potentially make a huge difference and that's what I, i'm finding really exciting yeah that's i think that's what excites me it's really nice to be doing research that's finding something that is absolutely logically sound which makes sense and that's always nice in research but it's also really nice that the outcomes could be so positive and so relatively easy to implement so for example training regimes are very easy to to make happen and i'm working on a few little versions of that to see if i can make those happen and i'd be very interested in talking to anybody who's interested in getting involved in this in in the future but i'm also very interested in devising tests that clinicians might be able to do so if we have clinicians who are really interested in this and they want to be more involved in being able to talk to their patients about kind of motion perception, temporal processing and all those kinds of things, then hopefully in the future, I'll have a test that they can they can try out and they can see because we need something, basically it's all good and well me saying, I believe that these factors could affect motion perception and therefore could affect the safety and the happiness of the patient. But then if I don't do anything, that's a complete waste of my research. So my ultimate goal is that I'm, we improve the patient information absolutely but possibly even get a test so that we can improve clinician confidence in talking about it as well because i think motion processing isn't hugely covered in the syllabus i don't think um, in optometry training because it's not used in clinical practice so it doesn't really need to be a huge feature and that's absolutely fine but that would obviously lead to then clinicians being a bit wary about talking about it to patients because i wouldn't want to talk to somebody about something that was outside my research field so i can absolutely sympathize so if we can devise a very simple computer-based test that is just part of the routine and you get results and the computer tells you what it means that's very very valuable I think from that perspective and we could offer training you know it's all these kinds of things we could do but it I think it's very multifaceted so we want to improve awareness and information but we also want to look at possibilities of training but then can we devise a test to help with this in the first place and then look at as the sort of end goal do we need to review referral criteria referral guidelines based on all those features in that way so there's a lot of work to do but i'm happy to say that the starting work has happened and we we have found evidence that this is likely to be happening with increased scatter so i think in terms of this research the future is very bright but we just need mm -hmm. to yeah keep moving forward and there are certainly a lot of applications aside from driving i'm just thinking a lot of our listeners could be involved with sports vision um and I imagine motion perception is something that is quite tied in with that sort of thing. Definitely. There's a, a lot of this kind of work going on. I know when I was doing my PhD, a couple of the other researchers were looking at sports vision as well, and that was quite interesting. But there's lots of evidence to suggest that people who are athletes might have slightly better, very peculiar, specific tasks for slightly better performance. So there's a paper I'm thinking of, which I loved. Um, I'm not going to remember the year, so I'm not going to pretend to, but basically it's football players so elite football players versus just 
like me off the street and looking at their ability to judge biological motion stimuli. So biological motion is where you have, let's say, a light on the joints of a person and you film them walking in the dark. Mm -hmm. And so you don't see a person, but you kind of get a gist that these dots are making a walking movement. And the, the task was, which way are they facing, basically? So you have this moving, these moving dots that look vaguely like a person. Which way are they moving? And it turns out the football players were much better, much better at this. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because what they do is they have to be able to visually predict the trajectory of the players that they play against. So you can think that their motion processing is more advanced in terms of the practical application of judging trajectories of people. Yeah, and probably the ball as well, I hope, um, <laughs> relative to your standard person. And what we don't know is, were they always better at that? And that's why they fell into football. Or did they get better at that because they kept training their active skills in that, if that makes sense? And I suspect it's more likely to be the second one where they have that interest and that care to practice and to keep doing it. And therefore, they get better and better and better. And so they then become better than a kind of average person at those tasks. And as you say, that would be true you'd have to find the right kind of task but that would potentially be true of anyone who's an elite sports person that relies on their vision to do that task no quite so um it's okay not to discourage my children to play computer games all day long then <laughs> oh definitely, definitely not I love computer games so I would never give that advice anyway but yeah I think there's a lot of value in all these kinds of training skills I mean even with computer games it's it's active so they're kind of learning coordination and all those kinds of things I guess depending on the game uh, but there's lots of evidence that any kind of visual visual training with reinforcement which video games do do because you either succeed at the level or you don't uh, that kind of thing is really good for building skills but also building visual processing abilities and improving their perceptual abilities as well so I think I wouldn't expect to see you know like everyone who plays video games is 10 million times better than everybody else but I would expect that they'd be a bit better in the, the type of skills that they've been training themselves on whether deliberately or not yeah definitely yeah, and I guess, um, well, certainly from seeing how much my children play and how much their friends play, it was so much more than what I did, partly because it's a lot more available and there's a lot more choice. Do you predict or do you have an opinion on whether this new generation of children will have sort of better motion perception going forwards? And then when you think about, I guess, the ageing population at the other end, then maybe they'll be less affected by motion protection issues with age because there's was so much better at uh, when they were young oh that's a great question as well yes very potentially I mean I think uh, to put my sort of boring scientist hat on I do suspect that because of the physiological limitations of the system there's only a certain level that we can get to before we just plateau and we can't improve anymore for example there's a certain frame rate that we just can't see you know as, as individual frames and all those kinds of things but in terms of being better than kind of they might have been if they weren't doing that kind of stuff I absolutely believe that they might be going into their adolescent years and then their early adult years at a, a higher level than other people might have been and I don't know in terms of real world application if they'd notice that they're better than those kinds of things because if we think about my anecdote about me and my sister we I don't believe that we would know that we were so different in our abilities to do that but it might really help them. They might be safer in terms of navigating the world and they might therefore not experience as much detrimental loss if they experience the effects of healthy aging or cataracts and that, that kind of thing in the future. But so, also it's just it's just nice, isn't it? <laughs> They're getting something out of doing something that they like, hopefully in a positive way. 
I can certainly um, then the parent guilt can go down a little bit then I'm just training emotion perception (laughs) definitely exactly you think like I mean we would always say it depends what kind of games they're playing obviously but um, I would say that I played a reasonable amount of video games as a child and I mean they weren't as advanced as they are now I can't play the ones that are out now but I definitely feel that I got a lot better the more I played them so there's a a game Guitar Hero which you may have played you may not and the first time I played that I was overthinking it I couldn't do it at all and it I sort of had to get I had to practice so much to get good at it but then I picked it up recently and I'm as good I think now as I was when I last played it about or oh, 15 years ago or something so there's clearly something in it where you train yourself and then you you kind of hold on to some level of that skill whether it's just the coordination between the vision and the motor skills or if it is just that you're then improving your visual experience so that you you then go into your adulthood with a bit more a bit more skill in that area or I, d- I don't know but I, d- I do definitely think that that would be an an effect a positive effect of those kinds of accidental training <laughs> regimes that's a lovely thing to think about really um and it's just been so interesting talking to you about this I I have to admit when we first sort of discussed this as an idea I wasn't quite sure if this would be great or how how it would quite work out but there's just so much application in motion perception that we're, we're already doing we're already thinking about but we don't necessarily know that we have and like you say I mean apologies to any of my lecturers that might be listening I don't particularly remember learning about it at university but that could be me rather than anything else um but I have to say it's been so interesting Oh, thanks. Well, as as you can probably tell, I'm really into this this topic. So it's been really nice to be invited to speak about it freely and have this great time. But I think as well, what you're describing is a very normal response to people talking about uh, temporal processing characteristics, because it's not something that we're really exposed to. It's not something we even really know very much about as a as a population. So it's I think that reaction is very normal. And I was very surprised actually when I was invited to talk about this because I thought nobody wants to talk to me about that ever. So I'm pleased that it's come across as an interesting topic. And I'm hopeful that this kind of starting the conversation, if you like, will get more clinicians interested in the the approaches to how we could measure it and if it's valuable and where it could be valuable and all those kinds of things. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. And when you're a little bit further along with your research, it'll be great to have you back for an update to sort of so that we can know more about the world of motion perception. Definitely. You'd have to try to keep me away. (laughs) I'll be talking about it to everyone. But yes, I'd love to come back. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much. Um, It was great talking to you um, on such a fascinating topic. Thank you. And thanks for having me. Motion perception and cataract was not a subject I knew anything about, and to be honest, I was struggling a bit to see the relevance to my patients. However, my conversation with Dr Strong today was fascinating, especially seeing how her passion for this topic could potentially change our everyday practice. It is also a really good example of how research can be applied in the real world. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.